KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. A vaccine shipment is on the way. When will Petco Park Superstation reopen? But we did hear that it is on track to arrive today, so that that would mean that UC San Diego is planning to open up that site tomorrow. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A push to slow the damage from climate change. And as a coastal city, a place like Mission Bay will just be completely water at some point. And a look at black history, how it's being taught, and how that shapes policy, plus the latest project from San Diego jazz saxophonist Charles McPherson. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. A shipment of vaccines that will allow the superstation at Petco Park to reopen is expected today. The vaccine location, one of the county's largest, has been shut down since Sunday. If the shipment is received today, it will reopen Wednesday. So what does that mean for access and availability? Joining me to discuss the impact of the shutdown is KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. So first, remind us what caused the Petco site to shut down. Yeah, last Friday, the county let everyone know that they had missed a large shipment of Moderna vaccines, and that had an effect on uh, countywide operations, basically. Uh, They said that they would have to shut down operations at that UC San Diego site, which is the busiest in the county by far. I mean, doing 5,000 vaccinations daily, sometimes well over. So they were closed Sunday, Monday, and today. And we heard yesterday from UC San Diego Health that that shipment is on track and that they will reopen on Wednesday. Do we know why the Moderna shipment was missed? You know, we don't know why. We just know it was missed. You know, I had a chance to ask Supervisor Fletcher last week if there's any, you know, fault here where we can say, you know, it's the county's fault, not placing an order, or, you know, this is a shipment delay. Um, and he said, you know, this is just something that's like the ebbs and flows of, of the shipment process. You know, something like this we knew could happen, and unfortunately, it did happen. So why was Petco the only local vaccine site to be impacted? Well, I will say that they're the only local vaccine site that completely shut down. On Friday, the county said that, you know, countywide that there will be an impact and vaccinations will slow and in some cases will pause with appointments rescheduled. Now, we don't know if that may have impacted some of the county's smaller pods, a bunch of the county's partners that they work with to get the vaccinations out. Um, But we do know that it is affecting other sites, but obviously not a complete closure like we saw at the downtown location. As you mentioned, a vaccine shipment is expected to arrive today. Have you heard if it's been received yet? I have not heard if it's been received yet, but we did hear that it is on track to arrive today. So that that would mean that UC San Diego is planning to open up that site tomorrow. And we do know that some of the other sites, you know, like the one at Grossmont Center, some people we talked to there yesterday said that they were getting their uh, their Moderna doses. So we know that doses are still going out and a lot of people are still getting Pfizer doses. Uh, So what do you know about access to this vaccine? I know it's been tough for people to get the appointments they need, but it's been particularly difficult for people of color. Why is that? 
Yeah, we know that at least in the, in the Latino population that they have been most heavily impacted by COVID-19 in San Diego County, but they're not getting the majority of the vaccinations. Now, uh, you know, there's a bunch of ways the county's trying to address that and the state, you know, uh, working on pilot programs with Promotoras, who are community health workers hitting the South Bay um, areas like City Heights and, you know, talking to some of the people on the ground. Some of those Promotoras, you know, they say a lot of people in that in those areas, you know, don't have easy access to transportation. And really what they're hearing in those communities is that the people want the vaccines to be taken directly to them, you know, open up a big, large vaccination site in City Heights where people can just, you know, walk outside their door, you know, maybe less than half a mile and go get vaccinated. We're not the only area to be impacted by vaccine shortages, are we? No, we're not. You know, we saw some stuff up in LA. They haven't, you know, paused and shut down some of their vaccination sites. So not only is, is it affecting, you know, San Diego, it's also affecting Southern California. And will people who had appointments scheduled over the last three days be the first to be vaccinated once the the site reopens? I don't know if they'll be the first to be vaccinated, but the UC San Diego health officials tell us that their appointments were automatically rescheduled. Something interesting, though, um, you know, obviously we know that the site was going to be closed for a few days. They obviously said that they notified people. But yesterday we were downtown um, near that Petco Park location, um, and there was a lot of people driving up, you know, clearly looking for their appointments, um, you know, surprised when the guard at the gate turned them away. Um, he was saying that on Sunday there was a lot of cars that came by looking for their appointments. So people, you know, need to check their emails to see, you know, or, or you know, check their messages to make sure that they're getting these updates. I know for some people, you know, even though there's a vaccination site downtown, some people are coming, you know, from Valley Center, from Vista, um, and sometimes, you know, take a day off work, maybe take a loved one down there is a lot. So make sure you're checking those emails because some appointments are getting rescheduled with these vaccine shortages. And for those who haven't been vaccinated yet or scheduled appointments, what's the best way to do that right now? Yeah, so the best way is to go to the county's website because there's a couple like competing portals, so to speak. You know, UC San Diego, the Petco Park Superstation, they use MyChart. Now, a lot of the stations are on the state's platform called MyTurn. And then you have some of the Cal Fire San Diego sites that also use a different platform uh, as they reach, you know, some of those rural communities. So the county's website, you know, has all those listed right there. And that's the best place you can go to find all that information. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Jade. While the vaccine shortages are delaying some from being vaccinated, others, including some pregnant or breastfeeding women, are uneasy about getting the vaccine at all. It's standard practice to keep women who are pregnant or breastfeeding out of clinical trials for new vaccines. But now some doctors say, in the case of COVID, that was a mistake. KPBS reporter Claire Tregesser tells us researchers are now turning their attention to studying breast milk from women who've got the shots. I panicked. I was like, what have I done? Oh my God, this is a total mistake. Jennifer Elwell, a nurse at UC San Diego, recalls a scary moment after breastfeeding her eight-month-old son. She had just received her first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine and knew the science behind her decision. I don't know. It just seemed like an easy way to help my baby. But yeah, I think initially right afterwards, I got home, fed the baby. And then I looked at my husband and I was like, should I not have done that? You know, <laughs> Doctors and medical experts recommend women who receive the vaccines continue breastfeeding. In fact, the conventional wisdom is that women who get the vaccine likely pass on protective antibodies to the baby through their milk. But Elwell's uncertainty is understandable, given the fact that no clinical trials of COVID-19 vaccines were done 
on pregnant or breastfeeding women. Well, hindsight's 2020. Uh, although we shouldn't use 2020 anymore as an example because that was a horrible year, clearly. Dr. Lars Borda runs the UC San Diego Mother Milk Infant Center of Research Excellence, which is now studying the impact of the vaccine on breast milk. The, the notion was originally to protect women from research when they are in this vulnerable space of either being pregnant or breastfeeding. But really what we should do is we should protect women and their babies by including them in the research to then have data whether it's safe or not. For the past six years, UC San Diego has run a collection center for breast milk called Mommy's Milk that studies the effects of all kinds of things on mother's milk. Dr. Christina Chambers is the founder and director. Can uh, the mother, in addition to protecting herself with the vaccine, uh, produce antibodies uh, to the virus that will actually benefit her child as well? Um, and then we'll also look at other uh, things about the milk. Does it, uh, you know, the fat, protein, carbohydrate composition change at all? Is there any difference in uh, milk supplies? So far, 1,200 women from across the country who've received a vaccine are shipping mommy's milk bags of pumped breast milk, one from before the vaccine and seven more over two months after getting the first dose. Answers to questions about the vaccine's impact on the health of babies will take the most time, but the researchers are cautiously optimistic they will find antibodies. They also expect to find that the vaccines do not put anything in breast milk that is harmful to babies. All of these theories are compelling to Dr. Christina Paid, an ER doctor at Rady Children's Hospital and mother of a six-month-old. She took the vaccine, continues to breastfeed, and is one of the study's participants. As any breastfeeding mother knows, it can feel painful to give up any pumped milk, but Paid says it was worth it in this case. They really are only asking for one to two ounces with, with each sample. So I think, you know, it ended up being like 15 to 20 ounces, which in the end is not, you know, not even a day's worth of feed. And so um, I felt like it was, you know, worth it for science. That science is what other moms like Carly Keats are waiting for. She is breastfeeding her son and is generally very pro-vaccine, but says it's hard to make a decision without data. There really isn't um, actual data yet saying that it doesn't you know, pass through. And if it does, maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but there really isn't anything statistically or data-driven that's telling me Yes, it's 100% going to be good for you and for your baby. Keats may have an answer by the time it's her turn for a vaccine, as results from the first 500 women from the UC San Diego study are expected in a few months. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego's ambitious climate action campaign is aimed at reducing and slowing down the causes of climate change. Now the city is launching an effort to adapt to the present and future effects of a warming planet. Using information from recent studies on the local impacts of climate change, city officials have targeted four main areas of concern. Sea level rise, flooding and drought, extreme heat, 
and wildfires. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. And David, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, this campaign is called Climate Resilient SD. What's its overall goal? Its overall goal is to have the city be in a position to adapt well to climate change so that it doesn't impact people's lives and the economy as as badly as it might uh, without such an effort. So the main climate action plan was to reduce the effects of climate change. This is sort of a component of that, but it's separate. It's how can we adapt to climate change in a way that the city isn't as adversely affected as it could be. Talk to us, if you would, about some of the projections that climate scientists are making about the impact in San Diego of those four main concerns of this project. For instance, what about sea level rise? Yeah, on sea level rise, uh, the projections that the that the city is using show that I guess the level of the sea could increase 3.6 feet to 10.2 feet in the next century, which compared to the 1900s last century, it was 0.71 feet. So it's really a huge, huge impact. And as a coastal city, a place like Mission Bay will just be completely water at some point. And they also project uh, either big bouts of rain or longer periods of drought. Is that right? Exactly right. There'll be more intense rainstorms and then there'll be longer droughts and more extreme droughts. It's definitely a big issue. What about the projections on extreme heat? Yeah, there's supposed to be more periods of extreme heat and they're supposed to be more severe. And if you're looking for numbers, they say by the 2040s, the average daily high temperature could be five degrees Fahrenheit higher than it is now, which would turn San Diego into, you know, has the one most mild appealing climates around and it'll become, you know, not quite as mild and appealing. And I guess some of those factors will affect our wildfires. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the the, the drought will make the uh, the ground that lights on fire drier. Um, and then the greater heat will increase the likelihood of a wildfire. So it's all one giant unfortunate uh, cycle where it, it all builds on, on itself. Now, hasn't the city already taken some steps to prepare for the effects of climate change? They definitely have. Um, they've they've been doing other studies and they've uh, they've made a lot a lot of plans. And obviously, their uh, wildfires have been a priority in the city since the 70s. So it's not like anything here is completely new. But the idea of putting it all together in one plan called Climate Resilient SD and coming up with a full blown comprehensive adaptation strategy is important because then the city is going to figure out how to prioritize what what uh, efforts they're going to make. But the key is let's know what the challenges are and let's know which ones we face, and let's prioritize them when we're looking at them all in one you know, one big group and deciding which ones we're gonna do first and which communities we're gonna prioritize and what we're gonna spend on what. And in fact, the city points to two um, mitigating efforts that they've already taken, and that is developing the city's tree canopy and the Pure Water Project, isn't that right? Yes, yes, the Pure Water Project is recycling, uh, you know, treated sewage water, which makes San Diego more water independent, which as water becomes scarcer and scarcer as the climate warms, is going to become steadily more important. Um, there's also a desalination plant in Carlsbad that you're familiar with. So yeah, those are those are key issues. The tree canopy, the city has studied that. They came up with different studies that show different levels of the city's tree canopy. Tree canopy is really important because it uh, decreases those extreme heat events. When you're in a neighborhood with lots of trees overhanging, it doesn't get quite as warm. So that's, it makes a big difference. Uh, and one of the strategies I thought was kind of clever is that the city's going to study what neighborhoods maybe are low income and have less houses with air conditioning and maybe try to focus on increasing the tree canopy in those neighborhoods so that 20 years from now when there's an extreme heat event, those neighborhoods won't be as adversely affected because they'll have a stronger tree canopy. 
And that's part of the equity factor that's in, that's being taken into consideration as San Diego moves forward on this climate resilient SD thing, right? Well, it's great timing because equity has become a much bigger priority at City Hall and you know, since the protest last fall and they have a new office uh, on race and equity that uh, Councilwoman Monica Montgomery Stepp is leading. Uh, and it fits, it dovetails well with this because different neighborhoods are going to be affected differently by climate change and the different neighborhoods don't have the resources to adapt well to climate change. You're in a wealthy home and you have a lot of money, you put in air conditioning if it gets too hot. Some neighborhoods, the folks don't make enough money to really put in an air conditioning system or put in a pool. Uh, and They don't have the easy access to get to the beach. So it, it does impact people differently. The equity element will take that into account. In an unrelated effort toward equity among San Diego neighborhoods, didn't the city council just announce an effort to pave dirt roads in low-income neighborhoods? That is correct. Yeah, they found that there's about 60 miles of dirt uh, roads and, and, and alleys that are mostly South State Route 94. Not all, but, but mostly, certainly district, uh, council districts four and eight. Uh, and the city had a law for liability reasons saying that they couldn't be held responsible for those dirt roads. A lot of them date back to the farming era. And uh, basically the, what the city council voted on last week was to say, no, we can be responsible for those. We do have the power to fix them. And we're going to put them in our big pile of capital improvement projects we consider every year, like new libraries and new fire stations and paving roads all over. Whereas in the past, they were separated and they weren't part of that because the city wasn't allowed to deal with them. Does the Climate Resilient SD program with adaptation to climate change as its goal signal that the city is less optimistic about its climate action plan being able to mitigate the effects of climate change? You know, it's an interesting perspective. I I don't think they would say that. I think what they would say was that we are hopeful that our plan is going to make a difference, but we understand that, you know, this climate change has been a problem that's been brewing since the Industrial Revolution began and since carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions began. And the idea that the city's climate action plan is going to solve it 100% would be overly optimistic. Let's prepare and try to, you know, mitigate the impacts. The public is being asked to get involved in the climate resilient effort to create adaptation strategies. How can they get involved? Yeah, there's a survey. If they go to the city's website, uh, the city uh, planning department website, they can go uh, and and fill out a, a survey. And the idea is the city wants to go into people's neighborhoods and get a feel for what's unique about your neighborhood that we as city officials maybe don't know that will help us come up with an adaptation strategy that we maybe haven't thought of just because we're not familiar with the nooks and crannies of each individual neighborhood. Okay, then I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, thanks. Thanks very much, Maureen. You can find a link to Climate Resilient SD on the KPBS website at kpbs.org. As we celebrate Black History Month, it's time to do a check on how far this country has come in understanding its past and how well schools are teaching it, especially here in California. Sarah Kaplan is an associate professor of ethnic studies and critical gender studies at the University of California, San Diego, and a founder of UCSD's Black Studies Project. Professor Kaplan, welcome. Thanks so much, Jade. It's great to be here. Why is this month of celebration so important? because we still live in a time when the history of Black people's experiences, lives, contributions, and struggles are not incorporated into the school curriculums and the ways in which we learn about our country in the ways you would imagine that it should be, despite the fact that in reality, the United States wouldn't exist as the nation that it is today without Black people having been here since 1619. 
a new and more inclusive standard was implemented in school history books for California's students. Can you tell me about those changes as it pertains to Black history? Well, one of the things that has been very exciting about the changes in California's history uh, curriculum, particularly increased attention to the centrality of Black people in the building of the United States. What I would say, however, is that one of the difficulties that we still have in California and across the country are the ways in which schools choose to fully engage that curriculum and the ways in which um, students learn that and the ways in which it gets incorporated for different classrooms in different places, and really the extent to which the full picture, including the more difficult parts, are truly incorporated. During Reconstruction, African Americans were able to build communities. Talk to me about that period. Reconstruction, for those of us who study Black history, is both was a moment of incredible promise and incredible tragedy. So as you may know, radical Reconstruction lasted for only a period of about 10 to 12 years. By 1877, most of the benefits of Reconstruction had been completely decimated. So we have a period of time immediately following the Civil War where we see the introduction of many new initiatives We begin to see all kinds of really critical shifts in voting enfranchisement, access to the polls, access to political power for African-Americans, possibility for land ownership, shifts obviously in citizenship laws that benefited not just African-Americans, but were inconsistently extended at times to benefit other uh, racialized immigrants. But then within a very short period of time, what becomes very clear is that even for Northerners and particularly in the South, this notion of Black political enfranchisement was so deeply undermining the structures of white supremacy on which the U.S. was built that the only way to imagine a unified nation again and to implement a unified nation was to do it on white supremacy. That's when we begin to see a rollback. We begin to see policies that no longer allowed Black people to own land. We see the rise of white terrorist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. We see the laws that are now called, you know, the sort of grandfather laws that said that if you couldn't prove that your grandfather could vote, that you were no longer allowed to vote. So we see the wholesale disenfranchisement and erosion of Reconstruction that ended by the 1890s with the implementation of Jim Crow laws and the wholesale disenfranchisement of African Americans from the vote. Since Reconstruction ended, do you think America has been able to reverse the damage done to African Americans by white supremacist terrorism, Jim Crow laws, and uh, the exclusion from the political system, as you mentioned? I try to tell my students, and in fact, everyone I talk to, that the story of African Americans and white supremacy in the U.S. post-Reconstruction is not one of damage, but one of resilience. That despite every structure being created against African-American opportunity, well-being, health, or long life, we have still seen an incredibly resilient community. But do I believe that to this day, if we look at everything from lifespan to wealth, to projected income, to uh, rates of death at the hands of both the police and extra-legal forces, Have we seen that the structures that deeply undermine Black opportunity and possibility still remain deeply 
slated against them? Absolutely. That, you know, it's not just that there's a sort of historic damage to be undone. It's much more that we continue to um, structure things in ways that make life much harder for African-Americans and to not really um, take fully into account the ways that those happen. So how does our understanding of Black history then shape the present, especially when it comes to policy? Such a great question. So, you know, I'm going to just use one very concrete example. One of the most fascinating things that I teach as somebody who studies Black women's history is I take something like with my students, like, say, the notion of the Black welfare queen, which we know emerged as a kind of trope under Reagan, this idea that there were tons of Black women with tons of children who were taking advantage of welfare checks and having kids just to get more money. And it became this fantasy, this racist fantasy that became so accepted as common sense that no matter how many statistics you gave people, no matter what you say, people continue to believe that somehow the real problem with our social system is welfare that goes to Black women. And I always go back and trace it to the origins of welfare. When welfare first began, aid for women with children began in the beginning of the 20th century, it was actually created in a way that excluded Black women from it. It was only for white women who were widows with children. And the notion was that if Black women received welfare, then they would no longer go to work. And they were needed to work in the in sharecropping. They were needed to work as tenant farmers. They were needed to work as domestics. And so, in fact, they were classified as necessary workers and excluded from the benefits of welfare. So I point out to my students that, in fact, this idea that Black women are taking advantage of welfare actually goes back to the idea that Black women never deserved help in the first place as we understood it. And now I tell my students, when we think about which workers are getting early access to the COVID vaccine, we see doctors, we see nursing home workers, we see other people who are seen as essential workers. But those people who are working in our grocery stores, who are doing low wage, high risk frontline labor that tend to predominantly be black and brown poor people, they are not being prioritized. No one is, you know, looking up at 7 p.m. and clapping for them every night. And yet they are risking their lives every day so that we can have the things that we need to function. And I argue that it's a continuation that goes all the way back to slavery of the idea that Black people's lives are expendable as long as they perform the labor that we need from them. I've been speaking with Sarah Kaplan, an associate professor of ethnic studies and critical gender studies at the University of California. Professor Kaplan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. California's criminal justice reform movement is facing a backlash, and the conflict is playing out in the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. Newly elected DA George Gascon says he will appeal a judge's ruling, stopping him from banning the use of sentence enhancements. Those enhancements can add years to a criminal conviction because of certain aspects of the crime or because of previous felonies. It was Gascon's own prosecutors who sued to stop his reform, and district attorneys across the state, including San Diego's Summer Steffen, are speaking out against Gascon's sweeping reforms. Joining me is Anita Chabrier, reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Anita, welcome. Thanks for having me on. 
Why did the judge rule against Gascon? Doesn't he have prosecutorial discretion on asking for sentence enhancements? Well, he does. And prosecutors carry a great deal of power. What this uh, decision is referring to is cases that have already been filed in Los Angeles courts and the ability to go back and change how those were filed. So this is actually a more limited ruling than it appears on the surface. Gascon's order not to seek sentencing enhancements is what got San Diego DA Summer Steffen to reclaim jurisdiction in one case involving an alleged crime spree. Can you tell us about that? Well, you know, she is not alone. There's also a case up in Northern California where the the DA felt that Gascon was not going to be appropriately punitive in his recommendations for how the charges went. And so in the in the case in San Diego, she simply decided to take back jurisdiction of that case to ensure that it was prosecuted in the way that she felt comfortable with. And it's interesting, you are seeing DAs for the first time that I've ever heard of in California, uh, having that conversation amongst themselves and amongst law enforcement about which jurisdiction, when there is an option, they want to file in. What other reforms besides sentencing enhancements has Gascon introduced? Well, he, uh, you know, does not believe in the death penalty and is not pursuing that in cases. He's not charging juveniles as adults, which is, again, something we've seen in other progressive offices across the state. He uh, has indicated that he's not going to uh, have bail in almost all cases at all. And what does Gascon say these reforms will accomplish? This is a large conversation about criminal justice across the country. And what we've seen over decades is mass incarceration of black and brown people, that our prisons are filled with black and brown people who have been treated more harshly by the system. Really, you don't have a lot of DAs from either side of this arguing that we have a problem with mass incarceration. It's how to fix that. And Gascon believes, uh, as do many prosecutors in his camp across the country, that ultimately the fix is with prosecutors, that they have the power to simply stop putting black and brown people in jail. And so his reforms are really looking at it through that lens of, of racial equity that has led to mass incarceration. When it comes to something like ending cash bail, California voters just rejected that in a ballot measure last November. Does Gascon have the power to order a reform like that? Well, I mean, I think we'll see a lot of dissent around it again, but technically, yes, it's up to the prosecutor to decide whether to ask for bail or not. But there is a general sentiment in California that we do need to not keep people in jail waiting for trial for months and months on, on small charges. So there, that's one of the reforms where Gascon probably will have a little bit more support than other places, just because it is more widely accepted that we do have a problem with bail. Why are some of Gascon's own prosecutors working against these reforms? Well, I think that depends on who you ask. So, you know, the official line is that these uh, reforms go too far. They're an overreach of power where he's making law instead of enforcing law. Um, and uh, really overstepping his bounds and ignoring victims' rights is what you'll hear a lot. Uh, If you ask the other side of this, he's doing exactly what he was elected to do, and he's he's doing it quickly and um, in an important way. So one tact that you will hear is that his prosecutors are simply standing up for the law and standing up for victims' rights. 
But there is also a sense that he came into an office that already was uncertain about him, didn't know a lot of what he was going to do, and came down with a very heavy-handed approach. He just said, this is what we're doing starting immediately. And there is a feeling that perhaps, you know, he could have moved slower, brought more people on board with his thinking before making those. So I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, and you'll, you'll see this continue to go on. I don't think there's an easy resolution. As you said, uh, the San Diego DA, Summer Stefan, is just one of many district attorneys who oppose many of Gascon's reforms. Is that kind of friction between jurisdictions unusual? The friction itself is not unusual. The public nature of it is shocking. I cannot remember a time when I have heard a elected official, elected DAs are elected, go after another elected official in a different jurisdiction. So to have this fight break out between California's DAs in public is, is pretty shocking. I've been speaking with reporter Anita Chavrier with the Los Angeles Times. Anita, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Charles McPherson is one of jazz's most prolific saxophonists, still performing and releasing new music even in his 80s. Most recently, he put out an album called Jazz Dance Suites, inspired by his time working as composer in residence at the San Diego Ballet. We asked McPherson to put us together a playlist of the music that got him into jazz, shaped his style, and continues to drive his music even during the pandemic. Here's Charles McPherson. Even if I can't perform, just to have music in my mind, I hear it in my mind, and to be able to just go to the piano and play a few chords or or go to the saxophone and play what I hear. So I, I try to be busy and try to be creative, even though that uh, these are some trying times. Just the passion and the love I have for the art itself it just makes me happy, just to, the fact that I, I can do it and hear it and, and I can actually entertain myself. One of my uh, inspirations is Charlie Parker. And one of the first compositions or song that I heard that Charlie Parker play was a, a, a song called Tico Tico. didn't know Charlie Parker. I had never heard him before. And uh, when I heard that, I, I heard it on a jukebox in my neighborhood. It immediately resonated with me. I, I, I was about 14 years old when I first heard this. And even though I uh, did not know how to, to explain why this resonated with me, but really what it was, I could hear even at that young age, his sense of logic melodic, linear logic. In other words, these long, beautiful musical phrases 
improvised phrases were well connected, you know, in a linear, melodic, and a very logical way. And even though I was a kid, I could hear this logic. It made sense to me. There's an album by Billie Holiday that impressed me a lot. You've changed That sparkle in your eyes is gone And of course, it's a famous record. It's, it's entitled Lady in Satin. I mean, I cry now talking about it, listening to some of this. You're breaking my heart. You've changed You've changed Your kisses now are so blase I learned so much from Billie Holiday in particular Not just this record, but Billie Holiday in particular Because besides having this really nice, pleasant voice there is this high-level degree of honesty uh, in, in how she sings and how she interprets. There's no egoic sense of trying to impress people. She opens her mouth, she sings the song, and there's no affectation, there's no trying to prove anything, there's nothing narcissistic about it. It's just pure emotional honesty and a very deep understanding of the words that she's singing. You're not the angel I once knew. No need to tell me that we're through. It's all over. Bela Bartok, I really love him, and I got interested in him. It's funny the way it came about. I moved into this apartment, and the preceding people had left a bunch of classical records that they didn't take with them. And they were in good shape, they were LPs. And one of them was a symphony called The Miraculous Mandarin Suite by Bela Bartok. I listened to this and I was mesmerized for about 40 minutes or however long it is. And I fell in love with him right then. Melodically and harmonically, it's just, uh, just gorgeous as far as I'm concerned. And I learned a lot. And that sort of interest, uh, introduced me to classical music um, in more of a, a, de a deeper way. 
I really started actively listening to different composers. Anytime you learn anything new, it broadens you or just gives you more dimension as an artist and, and as a person. The thing about uh, Charles Mingus's writing, his ballad writing is just beautiful. I mean, there are many tunes, ballads that Mingus wrote that I love. Portrait is one of them. I've seen all kinds of pictures Most of the beauties of the world Mingus's ballad writing in particular there was something haunting about his melodies, mixed with sensuality, and, and also his melodic inventions were a little different. Musical curveballs all over the place. I worked with Mingus for about 12 years. I was about 20 years old when I first joined his band. Mingus was in his early 40s, I think. And with my own writing, every now and then, I can hear influences from Mingus, and not because I'm trying to do it on a conscious level, uh, just because of osmosis and for years of being with him and having you know the sounds and chords uh, from some of his music in my in my mind the winds and the rain the love of the place leaves on the ground my also, I did learn from Mingus how to be thematic in my writing because Mingus wrote lyrics to his tunes. He was very political and he wrote political songs with, with protest words, but he wrote love songs and he wrote his own words. And he also wrote ballet uh, music. He wrote for, for dance and movement. I think that also influenced me uh, where that I started thinking about music in an episodic way, because uh, he certainly did. I think that kind of consciousness he brought to me, I, I became aware of that, that you just don't write a bunch of notes. You have a reason, you have a story that you want to tell. Tip with a dash of glowing white snow. But uh, what I learned from uh, Mingus Bartok and all the just different variety of music and styles that I've, I've listened to through the years. All of that has impacted how I think about music and uh, certainly led to me 
thinking episodically about music and not just writing notes for instruments to play, but also for people to dance. And that experience as being resident composer with the San Diego Ballet really brought all that to fore. I learned how to write for dance and how to be aware of a storyline and not just to ramble, but write meaningfully and to be structured. And um, also my daughter, uh, Camille, is like one of the principal dancers uh, with the San Diego Ballet. So basically she's the inspiration for doing that project, the Jazz Dance Suites. That was San Diego jazz saxophonist Charles McPherson. You can find links to the songs that influenced him as well as McPherson's latest record on our website at kpbs.org. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.